Let's stand together as Dan comes to read God's word for us today. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6, 5 to 18. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Right in the middle of our text this morning are the words that we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And I want to take you back to a moment to seventh grade, not your seventh grade, but my seventh grade. And believe me, I don't want to stay there very long, okay? But I'm going to take you back to seventh grade. I moved to Bixby Middle School that year. And I had already been playing football at my previous school. And so I joined the Bixby Middle School football team. And I went through the entire blazing summer of two-a-day practices being yelled at, dare I say being cursed at by my coaches. Went through all of this trying to, to find my spot on the team, learn the, the dynamics. We get to our first game, and right before our first game, after all the screaming and the yelling and the punishment and all of that, the coaches ask us to all get quiet, and then guess what happened? You probably had this experience some if you played sports as well. We recited the Lord's Prayer together right before our first game. Now, I did not grow up going to church much before that moment, and so lots of people around me knew the words to the Lord's Prayer. I did not. And even though I wasn't a believer, even though I had not spent any time at all much in the church, 
something in my mind as we were praying that way before the game and then right after the prayer we started yelling and screaming and banging helmets together and all of that again something told me that this is not probably how God intended this prayer to be used some of you may have experienced the same thing I don't know if they still do that anymore I began to think as we did that through 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade that maybe the goal was if we said the Lord's Prayer and all said it exactly right from our hearts, it was supposed to help us win. The problem is I think the other teams and the other locker rooms must have been praying it better than us because most of my high school life were not winning seasons. It's strange to take words from Scripture, words prayed by Jesus, and to use them in that kind of manner. I have no problem with a person praying or reciting the Lord's Prayer word for word. We just did that in the form of music a moment ago. But what I want us to see today with prayer, just as we've seen with giving and as we'll also see with fasting when we come to the end today, the purpose of what Jesus is teaching here is not to give us a script, okay? It's not just to give us something that we do that is so rote in terms of its religiosity that we somehow fall for this idea that if we just do it correctly or even do it perfectly, then somehow it's going to trigger this automatic response from God that's going to give us what we want. That's not the way Jesus teaches about prayer. That's not the way Jesus teaches about fasting. And it's not the way Jesus teaches about giving. Rather, as we begin this morning, there's a quote that I, I came across from an old French poet that I think speaks very well to the, the entirety of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 6. The French poet Antoine de Saint-Exupéry said, If you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and hand out wood. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. If you teach people to yearn, for the vast and endless sea, he's saying, then just watch how many ships are built and how many ships are launched as people long to, to go out into that great expanse and to see all that waits there for them. In the same way Jesus' teaching about giving and about praying and about fasting is not a manual, it's not a script. It's meant to draw our hearts closer to God that when we yearn for our perfect, eternal heavenly father it draws us into these disciplines it's because of our great desire to know our great god better that we become more generous and selfless that we become more genuine and fervent in prayer and that we even would seek the lord through hard disciplines like fasting yearning for god is what draws us into these activities where we put our righteousness into practice. And I think it's important as we move in further into this teaching on prayer and then into Jesus' teaching on fasting that we remember what Jesus said at the very beginning of this chapter in this section. That hanging over all of this teaching about spiritual disciplines is this idea, be careful. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them because if you do you will have no reward from your father in heaven as we talked about those three pillars of ancient jewish life last week almsgiving to the poor 
prayer and fasting. Here again, Jesus brings us back to the word posture. What should our posture look like when we practice our righteousness and when we approach our Heavenly Father in prayer? Going back to the verses we read at the end last Sunday and where we began this week as we break this section up into two parts, Jesus talks about our posture of prayer, again saying, do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them by reminding us that this is how we should come to God in prayer. When you pray, verse 4, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now again, as we said last week, this is about our posture. This is about the condition of our hearts. Jesus is certainly saying it's good to have a prayer closet, to have a prayer room, to, to have a physical space where you can go and be all by yourself and spend time in private, personal prayer before the Father. But he's not saying it's wrong to have corporate prayer. He's not saying it's wrong to pray and worship as we've done this morning or to gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to join your voices together and to seek the Father together. This again is about our posture. It's about the condition of our heart. The inner room may be the inner chamber of our hearts. That when we approach God in prayer, it's not to be seen by others. It's not for selfless gain. It's not for the praise of people, but it's in genuine, authentic humility and surrender that we come before God, that what we receive from him would be our reward, not that which we receive from others. And in addition to our posture, Jesus also teaches us about our approach. When you come to God in prayer, when you pray, do not keep on babbling, verse 7, like the pagans do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, don't approach God in prayer trying to impress him. He's not going to be impressed by your many words. And don't approach God in prayer using many words because you're trying to find the right script or that right formula that might then again trigger God to do what you're asking him to do. No, approach your heavenly father as if he already knows what's best for you. As if he already knows you better than you know yourself. As if he already knows what you need. And when you come to the Lord with that kind of surrender, with that kind of posture, that kind of approach, you can trust that your Father hears your prayers. From teaching us how not to pray, we might say, Jesus then moves into teaching us in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. And what I want us to do here in the heart of the message, because I, I, I would say that the, the Lord's Prayer really is at the heart of our text this morning. I want us to break this down for a moment, 
not as a script, not as a formula, not as a manual. Though again, it's fine if you want to pray these, these words word for word when you pray. I can't guarantee it will help you win football games or other sporting events. But it's okay if you want to pray the Lord's Prayer and recite it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And Jesus gave us these words for a reason. But at the heart of these words are some ideas that, that flow within the context of this whole passage. What does it look like to approach God in prayer with genuine hearts? And how ought we pray, as Jesus taught his disciples, when we pray to our Heavenly Father? The first words of the prayer there, starting in the second part of verse 9, are words related to worship to God's worship, the worship of our Heavenly Father. We might call these opening words an invocation or a doxology, words of prayer and, and glory to the name of God. In Aramaic, we read this in English as our Father in Heaven. If you read it in the language of the New Testament Greek, it, it gets a little closer, but it's still not the actual words that Jesus spoke. When Jesus prayed this prayer out loud in front of his disciples, in front of those who were hearing the Sermon on the Mount, he was praying in Aramaic. And the very first word of this prayer in Aramaic, therefore, would have been a word that some of you are probably familiar with, the word Abba, which is not a reference to an amazing band from the 70s and 80s, okay? The word Abba is literally a word that means dad. It's not as informal as daddy and and even some translations will try to pick this up and say, Father dearest, but that sounds kind of creepy to me, Father dearest. It's more like dad, the way that, that, that a, a child addresses their father in a very personal way that, that says, you're not just a father, you're mine. You're not just some dad, you're my dad. And the language of this prayer is Jesus in Aramaic very personally speaking to his father and saying to him, Father, Dad, hallowed be your name. May your name be honored. May your name be praised. May your name be magnified. Listen, may your name be known. That's what hallowed means. Dad, Father, who loves me, who knows what I need. Dad, Father, who, who wants me to grow, who wants what's best for me, who wants me to flourish like any good father, like any good parent wants for their child. Father, may your name be honored and magnified and praised and known. And then moving from worship, which is where Jesus tells us to begin when we pray to our Father. We pray for his will to be done. His present and his eternal will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This idea of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is a significant theme all throughout the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, highlights the many times when Jesus talked about the kingdom this idea that there is something that God is doing within creation, in this universe, in this world, that has a purpose to it beyond what we can see with our physical eyes and beyond, for most of us, 
what will be our physical lives. Another way to describe the kingdom of heaven is less as a destination, and, and like we might sing when we all get to heaven. It's less of a destination and it's more of a direction. That God, through the work of his eternal kingdom, is constantly pulling everything forward to the point that someday, when the end of this age comes, when Christ returns and he finishes all the work that he has to do in this age, everything will once again be perfect, just as it was when God created it in the beginning. The kingdom is advancing the kingdom is moving forward, though sometimes it feels like the darkness is winning. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a declaration that we know the darkness is not winning. But as scripture teaches us, the light is already shining, that is overcoming, that is overwhelming the darkness. And as God's kingdom advances, when Jesus Christ comes and finishes his work, listen, all that will be left is light. There will be no more darkness. All that will be left is truth. There will be nothing left that is false. All that will be left is good and righteous and pure. There will be no more sin. There will be no more evil. All that will be left is life. And amen to this, there will be no more death. This is the prayer of the kingdom. It's a statement of faith that we trust that what God has promised us is true. And it's also an, a, a prayer of alignment, like we talked about last week. That the first thing we say before we start our own petitions, the first thing we say after we worship is, Lord, let your will be done. And then as we seek the will of God, then we begin to pray and ask the Lord to show us what that looks like in our lives. And the goal of our prayer lives, when we petition the Lord for the things we need or the things we believe we need, is that our will and his will would be the same. So before we ask God for our daily bread, before we ask God to forgive us of our sins, we pray, Lord, let your will become mine. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and and then as we seek God, we seek that those things would be the same. We begin our prayer with your. Lord, let your kingdom come. Your will be done. Hallowed be your name. But then the language shifts to our. And notice it, it doesn't shift to my. It's not first person. But all throughout the rest of this prayer, it's second person it's plural it's plural it's not singular it's plural it's not my will it's ours it's not my daily bread it's ours and there's this beautiful sense here i think this is so important that we don't miss it that when we pray we're not praying selfishly we're not praying in such a way that we have tunnel vision where all we can really see is that was at the end is at the end of our noses where we pray with blinders on and we fail to consider each other when we pray. The entire language of this prayer is plural. It, it's us. We are God's family. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And so when we pray to God, even for our own petitions, listen, we think about each other. And we consider that we're all in this thing together. 
And I believe that, that, that this is really important and something that's often overlooked in churches like ours because so often our Western minds just dominate us. We so often tend to think about only the individual. We think about my will, my autonomy, my relationship with God. It's not that those things aren't important, but more often than not, the Bible uses the plural language. When it talks about God's people, it doesn't talk about me, it talks about us. When it talks about responsibility, it doesn't just say you, it says you all. It, it talks about who we are as a family. And so I think it's so, so important that as we talk about these petitions, we remember that what I do affects you and vice versa. So how I pray ought to be to pray in such a way that I believe it affects you and how you pray ought to be in such a way that it affects me. We're all in this together. One of the ways I also think this is important and often overlooked is that here as we sit today as the body of Christ in 2022 in America, we're affected by the things that our brothers and sisters in Christ who lived before us have done. We're still trying to build upon their reputation or maybe even ways where their reputation was damaged. And listen, this is where it really gets tough. Those who come after us, they're going to be affected by who we are and what we do. Someday, we're going to hand this baton off to others. I'm not sure right now whether we're handing it off in better shape than we got it. But we're going to hand this off to others and what we do right now as the body of Christ affects those generations who are coming behind us. It's a significant responsibility that we must steward well. And as we move into this part of the prayer, Jesus is teaching us not just how to live this way, but to pray this way. To pray for God's providence. To meet our needs, not just my needs. Give us today, Jesus prayed our daily bread that language of our daily bread would probably have called to mind for those who heard the sermon on the mount in person what was called the peasants breakfast or the workers breakfast this was the breakfast of the farmer the fisherman or the carpenter the bread that they would save at night they would would put aside the the very best of their bread left over from the dinner meal to be that staple that they would eat very first thing in the morning, right as the sun rose. Those who were going out to work, especially in lean times where maybe they didn't have other choices, they would stuff themselves with the best bread, trusting that that would sustain them all the way through the workday, even in harsh conditions. So knowing that that's the kind of language Jesus is using, we we hear the language of sustenance. Give us today our daily bread is, is about much more than just food. It's a prayer that God would sustain us and give us everything we need for this very day, right here and now, to be the people that he's called us to be and to do the things that he has set out for us to do to sustain us. I love the way that some of our Native American ancestors used to pray this prayer. I've shared with you all before that this new version of the New Testament that's come out, it's called the First Nations Version, is such a beautiful interpretation of the ways that Native Americans and indigenous folks from Canada 
have interpreted the scripture and used them among their own people to speak language that would help people understand the Bible in terms that were part of their everyday life. The Lord's Prayer in the First Nations Version is absolutely beautiful. But I just want to read this, this little interpretation where Jesus said in our version, give us today our daily bread. Here's what the Native Americans taught each other to pray. Provide for us day by day the elk, the buffalo, and the salmon, the corn, the squash, and the wild rice, all the things we need for each day. I love that picture in language we can understand in our own time based on our own needs. Lord, these are the things we need to get through this day. Provide them for us, sustain us through your providence to meet our needs. And then here's where I think the prayer is the toughest. When we pray for God's forgiveness, forgive us our debts. Jesus also tied to this one, it's the only one he does this with, an action step. That when we pray for God's forgiveness, we would also commit ourselves to forgive those who are our debtors, those who have sinned against us. And notice the language, and forgive us our debts, not as, okay, someday, Lord, we will forgive our debtors. Or some, someday, perhaps, maybe, Lord, we'll finally come to that point where we offer forgiveness to those who have wronged us. No, Jesus says we should pray, forgive us our debts as we have already forgiven those who have sinned against us, our debtors. This language of sin as a debt is such a consistent teaching of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that all of us have sinned against God, every single one of us, including me. And that sin where we have been disobedient to what God's Word has told us to do, or where we have failed to do the right thing in the moments when we knew what the right thing was to do, that sin that we all have has put us in a position before our perfect Heavenly Father of debt. There is a lack. There's something now that we owe. There's a price to be paid because we have sinned against God. Each and every one of us, because of that sin, we, we're in the position of debtor before God, but, but we could find ourselves being very hopeless because the truth is none of us have enough and none of us can do enough to repay the debt that we owe. The debt that we owe to God because of our sin, it's just too big for any of us to pay. But the good news, because of Jesus Christ, is that yes, that debt is too big for us to pay, but we don't have to pay it ourselves. The debt that we owe to God has already been paid in full through Jesus Christ. The hope that we have as believers the hope that we have in Christ that we sing about, it's the hope that we have because of the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ who put on flesh and blood and dwelled among us as a human being, he paid our debt in full because we could not have done it ourselves. Not one of us could have hung on that cross and paid the debt for sin because not one of us was sinless. But as we sang this morning, Jesus who was without sin, who has our names graven on his hand and written on his hearts. Jesus Christ went to the cross for us 
and he paid our debt in full so that we might, when we pray for God's forgiveness, believe that we receive it. And Jesus says as an action step here, when you pray for God's forgiveness, how dare you not forgive others? Because you have received so much mercy. We've talked about this over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Because you have received so much mercy, such great forgiveness. Then be people of mercy and forgiveness towards others. As one scholar said, an unforgiving Christian should be an oxymoron. It should not exist. God has forgiven us. He's erased the great debt that we owe to him. So too we ought to forgive others. Or as the First Nations version says, God release us from the sins we've committed against you and lead us to release others for the sins they've committed against us. And then the last two of the seven petitions in the prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, we pray for your guidance and your protection. In fact, Jesus may have been referring here to an ancient Jewish prayer that people knew well. They would pray, Heavenly Father, keep us from entering sin, temptation, or shame. This is not blaming God for the temptation or the sin that we experience in our life. But again, it's a prayer for his protective and guiding hand to keep us on the path of righteousness, to protect us, to shield us, to guide us away from those paths that lead us to temptation and to sin and to shame. It's that posture of humility, that posture of surrender, that posture of obedience Submitting our lives to God's hand of guidance and protection. Now, as Dan was reading a moment ago, you might have thought that he skipped a verse. Because some of your Bibles may have the words that we sang, the words that are commonly prayed right after verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Most of the earliest manuscripts don't contain that part of the prayer so that's why our translators we read from today left it out listen here's what i'll say i'm not sure if jesus prayed that or not but there is absolutely nothing wrong with adding that to your prayer life lord may your kingdom and power and glory be forever and ever amen pray those things it, it fits perfectly with the language that jesus prayed but we do know that at the very end of the prayer jesus added this comment just a little explanation on the forgiveness part. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you live out the forgiveness you have received, you will unlock all of the many blessings of God's forgiveness in your life. You will unlock the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control that forgiveness will flow through you but if you do not forgive others of their sins you won't experience the fullness of god's forgiveness your father will not forgive your sins because that that openness to forgiveness in your own life 
unlocks the fullness of the forgiveness of Christ and of your heavenly Father in you. Jesus then turns to fasting. I hate that I'm going to spend so little time on this this morning because it only reinforces the fact that this is probably the discipline that most of us practice the least. But Jesus, again, does not use the language of if. He uses the language of when. He says, when you fast. There's an expectation in this language that God's people will practice this discipline. The discipline of fasting, which means denying ourselves of something. Most of the time we think of denying ourselves of food. The idea is to deny ourselves of a daily pleasure or something that's a part of our daily routine that when it's gone, we will miss it. We will struggle. We will suffer. We will have to resist the temptation to do that thing, to eat that thing, to participate on that, in that thing. And, and when we feel that struggle, we will surrender further to God. And it will build that discipline in us further that reminds us we depend upon Him, not on those things that we experience in our daily lives. So listen, when you fast, fast from something that you will truly miss. It's not fair to say something like, you know, today I'm going to fast from running a marathon. Unless you are a daily marathon runner, okay, something like that doesn't count. It also doesn't count to say, today I'm going to fast from taking out the trash or some daily responsibility you do. No, fasting is something we will miss. It's something that will cause us pain to, to not do, to not consume, to not participate in. And the purpose of fasting is not just so we would suffer. The purpose of, of fasting is to grow our dependence upon the Lord and to, to spend the time we would normally do in that activity doing something else that either grows us closer to God or grows us further in our love for our neighbor or hopefully both at the same time. So a great example of this, if you're fasting from a meal, the point is to spend that time in meditation, in prayer, growing closer in your love for God. Or you might spend that time taking the food you would normally eat and spending it on the poor, giving it to the hungry, so that you would grow in your love for God, your love for neighbor, that fasting would be a discipline that only helps you further fulfill the two great commandments. You heard from Isaiah 58 in our Old Testament reading a little while ago. The purpose of fasting, God says, is not just so that you would humble yourself, lay down in sackcloth and ashes, deny yourself food. God said to his people, fasting is meant to make the world a better place. Fasting is meant to make you a more faithful follower of God's word. I often give you homework assignments. Here's your homework assignment for today. Go read Isaiah 58. It's not a very long chapter. But the way that God describes fasting, that, that, that he expects from his people more than just an act of religion, more than just a discipline, fasting is meant to make an impact on us and on others. He says when you fast, is it, is it not meant to free those who are oppressed, to break the yoke of slavery, to spend yourselves upon the poor, that you, you would give food to the hungry and clothes to those who don't have clothes, that, that when you fast, you would be obedient and you would demonstrate the great love that God has given to you 
in your love for others. Do not fast, Jesus says, like the hypocrites do. They love to look somber, disfigure their faces, to show others they are fasting. They do this too, just so that others will take notice. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret. Just as with giving, just as with praying, so also with fasting, He will reward you. Here's the bottom line. Those things we do in practicing our righteousness are to be done in such a way that the reward we get from God and the faithfulness that flows out of our lives, that's the, re- that's the only reward we need. That what comes from our Heavenly Father, that is what we truly desire. If you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipping, shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and hand out wood. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. When you seek the Lord through giving, through praying and fasting. Don't seek those things in and of themselves. Don't seek to do them so that others will notice you. But seek those things so that you may know your perfect, eternal, heavenly Father better. And that you and I, that we would be faithful in being a part of his kingdom which is coming and his will that is being done on earth even now as it is in heaven. As we move to our time of invitation today, would you be willing to open your heart and seek him today? I ask you this simple question as we prepare for this moment. Do you love God more and do you know God better today than you ever have before? And again, as I've asked in the previous weeks, does God have more of your heart and life today than he ever has before? As we go before the Lord in prayer, as we have this time of invitation and response, would you be willing to seek him today? Would you be willing to remember the words we've talked about? Our Father's love, his forgiveness, his generosity towards us. Today, would you seek your heavenly Father and would you say to him today, here is all of my heart and all of my life as I come to you. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ who is our model. He not only gives us the model way that we should pray, but he modeled for us and models for us what it looks like to live in obedience and faithfulness before our Heavenly Father. God, I pray today that you would take these words, you would take the instruction and also the calls to action, and that for each and every one of us, you would draw us closer and pull us forward in obedience. And I pray today if there's any person who is still living in a state of debt towards you because of their sin. They have never experienced your forgiveness by receiving it, confessing their sin, turning away in repentance, and giving their whole heart and life to you. Lord Jesus, today, would you speak to that person's heart so clearly? Would you draw them to you, draw them to the cross, that they might experience your forgiveness and live forever for you? pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.